25? Relatively speaking, yes. It's 25 episodes since we first started podcasting from this sofa. Well, what do you reckon? Are things more professional now? Well... That went a bit voicey. <laughs> I know you know. I know you know, I know. I know. Episodes. <laughs> Episodes. <laughs> 25 episodes? Yes. Time for a rest. Time to get started. Come on, Lisa. That went from Sylvester to Wurzel Gummidge. Next Wednesday, the return of Secret Army. In occupied Belgium, both sides are made aware of an important arrival. This man uniform of a brigadier general in the British Army and a staff officer. You'll just have to trust me. I don't have to do anything. You're not RAF. You won't explain why you're here. You could well be a German for all I know. And we don't take chances. Secret Army returns next Wednesday at five past eight on BBC One. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode... 25. Of Round the Archives. Oh, Ooh, we've gone all silver. Yes. It's our silver... It's our silver anniversary. Av- anniversary. <laughs> so, thank you everyone... Yes. ...for helping us to get to... 25. To this, ...this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, are there any leftovers from 24? I don't think so. Nobody's not, mentioned not, anything. Not really. No, uh, we no. seem to be hitting a stride of getting most, getting, getting most right. things right. Yeah. I don't know how that's, yeah. that's, not that's gonna ha- last, happened. Is it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but lots to do in this episode, so yes. we won't hang about. New. So we're going to kick off with a new writer and a new voice. Yes. Hurrah. Welcome. In the form of Andy Priestner, mm-hmm. who's going to talk about Secret Army. Secret Army is without doubt my favourite TV series of all time. Like most Archive TV fans, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of Doctor Who and know a possibly unhealthy amount about many other classic shows, most notably Tenko and Survivors, having written extensive books on each. But if I had to pick just one Desert Island TV series, it would have to be Secret Army. Three series from 1977 to 1979, over 42 50-minute episodes, Secret Army enthralled an ever-growing audience. In its final season, it also benefited, like Doctor Who then in its 17th season, from the ITV strike, winning over 20 million viewers for some of its final episodes. I was seven at the time. I loved it. It gripped me totally. It would be well over 25 years before I saw it again. Secret Army was created by Jerry Glaster, a legendary TV producer who had so many successes on his hands in the 70s. They included The Expert, Oil Strike North, the long-running drama The Brothers, um, but most notably, I think, Cold It's, which over two years was one of the most successful programmes on TV. 
it was due to the success of Colditz and its World War II setting that um, Glaister decided to come up with Secret Army to see whether the public wanted kind of more of the same, albeit in a different setting. What are you doing here? What went wrong? Everything. There was a raid on the farm. The Luftwaffe police. Was Yvette there? No, she hadn't arrived. I don't think she even made contact with the three evaders. They must have panicked when they saw the Germans in the area. What happened at the farm? They took the farmer and his wife away for questioning. They found nothing. They won't hold them long. Oh, perhaps not. But we can't use that farm as a safe house any longer. That was a scene from the very first episode of Secret Army, which was broadcast on the 7th of September 1977 and was entitled Lisa Codename Yvette. Um, you, you heard Bernard Hepton playing Albert Foray and Juliette Hammond Hill playing Natalie Chantron. Um, that first episode was written by Willis Hall, who wrote quite a few episodes of the first series, uh, best known for his writing partnership with Keith Waterhouse. He wrote the films Billy Liar and Whistle Down the Wind. And it was directed by Kenneth Ives, who, as well as um, directing, also acted, most notably in um, Last of the Mohicans, playing Hawkeye. Um, also, Doctor Who fans will know him from playing one of the Dominators in 1968. I think he's a, a very good director, and he contributed five episodes to this first series of 16 episodes. Secret Army's greatest strengths are its characters, um, played by some incredible actors, really at the top of their game. Um, already mentioned Bernard Hepton who plays Albert Foray um, through all the three series and um, Juliet Hammond Hill who was in fact my first crush on TV um, playing Natalie the Evasion Line Guide. I should also mention my favourite character of all Monique Duchamp played by Angela Richards who's um, more of a West End musical star um, she followed Elaine Page into Cats as Grisabella. Um, who else? Ah, yes, of course, Jan Francis, um, famous for Just Good Friends. This was her very first um, prominent serious role. And we're just going to listen to a clip from the first episode featuring her as Lisa, codename Yvette. When were you brought down? About three weeks ago. We crash-landed on our way back from Dusseldorf. Sergeant, you have entered an escape line. If you give yourself away, you will be taken to a prisoner of war camp. The Belgian people who have helped you, who have risked their lives on your behalf, will be taken out and shot. Please do not forget that. Two of Secret Army's most electrifying performances are given by the regular characters of Sturmbundfuhrer Ludwig Kessler, played by Clifford Rose, and Mayor Owen Brandt, played by Michael Culver, who square up against each other, um, because one's from Gestapo, one's Luftwaffe, um, but also they're, they're seeking to stop the evasion lines that are being run by Albert and co. And um, they're always worth watching. Every scene with them in uh, is, is an amazing scene. And this is a, a clip when they first um, butt heads together. You have taken a wrong step, if I may say so. If I had been given time... You may not say so, my Brandt. The treatment of all civilian suspects is entirely my affair. And there is no time. My immediate aim is to see to it that not one single RAF evader gets in or out of this area. And mine, Sturmbannfjord. Then I hope we may combine our effort to achieve that object, uh, Meyerbrandt. Other regular characters include Alan Mooney, played by character actor Ron Pember, 
Gaston Colbert, who's Lisa's uncle, played by James Bree, and Dr. Pascal Keldmans, played by Valentine Dial, who everyone knows, of course, as the Black Guardian. And in the first series, Flight Lieutenant John Curtis, played by Christopher Neem, who had been one of the regulars in Colditz, and again, Doctor Who fans would know, of, of course, as Skagra in Sharda. Um, this next scene is when he's first starting to learn about Lifeline, the evasion line in Belgium, that he's going to be helping shortly. And um, he's playing in this scene against Anthony Ainley. Um, Sukhrami has so many great guest actors like all those TV series of the time. Do you mind telling me what this is all about? Let's uh, begin with you, shall we? Flight Lieutenant John Curtis, 29 years old, born in Leeds, educated Leeds Grammar School. You've been in the service 18 months. You enjoying working on the escape and evasion exercises, Curtis? Does this play something to do with the Air Ministry? Am I being posted back to operations? Shall we take it one step at a time? And I'd appreciate it if you'd answer my question. As has probably been intimated by the clips I've chosen to play so far, Secret Army concerns the exploits of brave Belgian civilians who risked their lives rescuing downed British airmen, escorting them through France and over into Spain and from there to freedom down the escape line. Um, all the time being um, chased cat and mouse by the occupying Germans, Kessler and um, Brandt. So how familiar does all this sound? Probably very, and it should, for it's the premise that the BBC chose later to parody directly in the comedy series Hello Hello. Um, it's kind of staggering in a way that the BBC chose to um, parody their own series and take the piss out of it to such um, a direct um, degree. It's something that um, upset the cast deeply, um, the cast of Sikhrabi that is, um, because the characters were almost directly aped. You have um, the character of René, it's effectively Albert, um, Monique becomes Edith, um, Natalie becomes um, the, the maids, you know, Yvette and Maria, and Lisa becomes Michelle of the Resistance. Um, Kessler is um, hair flick, etc., etc. And um, yeah, of course, the lower lows funny in its own right, and I certainly enjoyed it in the 80s, but it had the effect of completely erasing memory of Secret Army from, from yeah, public memory. So um, now I have an uneasy relationship with the lower low um, because I think it's a huge shame that um, it's, it's meant that um, Secret Army isn't known because I completely believe it's the best TV series that, that was ever made and I really want people to find it and to, um, to explore it and be moved by it as I have been um, over the years. Look at him, Oberleutnant. It is the face of the enemy it is the face of defeat. It is the face of death. Isn't that what we all wish to see? For this feature on Secret Army, in which I'm focusing just on the first series, I thought I should choose one representative episode that might encourage you to watch the series had you not done so already. I've chosen A Question of Loyalty which, like the very first episode, was directed by Kenneth Ives and written by Willis Hall. This is the 11th episode of Series 1. The scene you just heard was from the start of the episode, in which Kessler's steely determination and lack of squeamishness 
was underlined when he forces one of his younger officers to look at the seriously burnt face of a dead British airman. I think a lot of people coming to Secret Army for the first time um, fear that they may never be able to take it seriously because of a lower low, but I can tell you, you very quickly get over that. Yes, there's some sort of um, code that is similar to that used in a lower low at the very start of the series. Things like talking about the evading airmen as um, three puppies that have to go to the kennels or the missing books from the library. Um, but the series quickly drops that sort of talk, um, so that reminder's not there. And quickly as well, the characters in the setting, you start to believe in Albert and Monique and Lisa and Natalie and Kessler as characters in their own right. And I can promise you that from about episode four, five or six, you will very rarely think of a lower low again. By the time this episode comes around, episode 11, you'll be hugely invested in the characters and care about what they think and do. And you will also be in love with the neatness of the plotting. Um, I've chosen a question of loyalty because because it's just so deftly done. It's um, an episode which centres around um, how Monique feels. What I love about Secret Army is, because it's got a big enough cast, you can have episodes which focus on different characters. And sometimes people have a quiet week other, other times and they're brought to the forefront. And this episode is very much about Monique, with a bit of Albert and, and Lisa thrown in for good measure. You're a boy. Younger than me. Don't go to him, Monique. Don't go. Stay here this afternoon with me. You don't understand, do you? You're too young. What do you think I'm going back to? To your lover. To your Albert. To a man who has a wife already. Let him go to her this afternoon. You stay here with me. You you think we, we all live our lives in separate compartments. You hear me there. You really have no idea what life is like, have you? There is this man who happens to have a wife, but she's a quite separate person somewhere else. Well, I can tell you it isn't like that. What can I say about the performance of Angela Richards as Monique? She's always stupendous. It's amazing that she's not an actress that we, we know more about. Um, I have to say, she always reminds me very much in terms of the way she acts and her character, the character of Monique, uh, very much of Sarah Jane Smith, or perhaps a, a slightly older Sarah Jane Smith. Um, like Elizabeth Sladen, Angela Richards has a, a way of really engaging with you in a very human way. She feels so real and instinctive um, and opinionated without being pushy. Um, yeah, so many aspects that, that feel familiar to me and give me the same chills and vibes. Um, so in this episode, Monique endangers the entire Evasion Line organisation because she falls for um, an infiltrator into the line, um, a man who's pretending to be a British airman, but is in fact um, a plant from Kessler, and he actually is an SS man. And um, it just so happens that Monique falls for his charms at a point when she's at her lowest ebb, um, really fed up of her relationship with Albert, who um, she's his mistress, and of the situation that um, his wife is ill upstairs, Andre Foiré. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting premise, this one. Yes, there's Albert. Yes, there's his wife, and all three of us live together under one roof. And she's a bedridden invalid. Albert sleeps in the room next door. Sometimes 
when he's making love to me. I can hear her in the next room. Not often, because mostly she's asleep. But asleep or awake, I know she's there. And I... I hold my breath, trying not to make a sound in case she is awake. Sometimes I lie there and... I feel pity for this woman. But mostly it's hate, because she's no right to be there inside my head, not then. There are no compartments, Sergeant. All three of us share one. How can I explain to you? Just because you're old enough to wear a uniform doesn't mean you're old enough to understand. My life isn't simple, it's complicated, it's ugly and it sickens me and I don't want to go back. Not this afternoon, but I have to. I belong there. Secret Army does an excellent job of ensuring that all of its characters are um, seen as three-dimensional and very human. And there's no goodies and baddies as such. Yes, the Germans are nominally baddies, and, you know, there's occupation and there's evil things that they do. But on the side of the resistance, there's also questionable actions and judgments that are regularly um, questioned through the narrative. And, um, yeah, it's it's never a straightforward um, black and white, good and evil. Um, Even with Kessler, who is the show's, you know, arch-villain, as it were, we find out in series two that he he has another side to him when he falls in love with a Belgian aristocrat. So, um, yeah, there's so much to be said for the careful characterization. And here in A Question of Loyalty, um, Clive Arundel's character of Stoller, um, who is the infiltrator, there's a feeling that he genuinely has fallen for Monique. And, um, you know, this isn't just a, a means to an end to find out more, that he actually has affection for this um, resistance person. Luckily, Monique's resistance colleagues realise before it's too late that Stoller is an infiltrator and clearly not who he says he is. And um, they also learn through surveillance that Monique has spent rather too long at the safe house where he's staying. And it's very clear that they realise that um, she has, has slept with him. And Albert is aware of this. And... Um, yeah, clearly struggles with the fact that his mistress has been with another man. Um, but then there's the question of, of what happens next, because, um, yeah, this situation needs to be sorted out. What can I do? So far, he's only met you and Pascal. You're the one he spent most time with. Does he trust you? Yes. You're quite sure? Quite sure. If you told him he was going along the line tomorrow, he'd accept that without question. He'd let you take him, without question, out into the country to meet his next contact? Yes. Tomorrow morning, then. This episode, in many ways, epitomises Secret Army's approach to plotting. There's deep insight into a character's motivations, a life-threatening problem that needs to be solved, scenes that forward character and feeling in preference to other aspects, and a surprising and extremely neat plot twist that takes the episode to another level. On this occasion, the plot twist is that Monique takes the man to his death, and that death is administered by none other than her lover, Albert, who um, is doing it on the basis of, you know, he's part of Lifeline, he's there to make sure that they're kept safe. 
But obviously there's an angle here. Of course he wants to kill this man who's just slept with his with his mistress. So um, it's a really awkward and uncomfortable feeling because he's getting his revenge. Um, she can't say anything about it because she's put the whole line at risk through her actions. Um, there's a whole lot of emotion and and stuff going on there that, um, yeah, you, it really stays with you and you really think about it beyond the episode. What's the matter? Have I forgotten something? No. I was just wondering if you were ever going to look into my face again. Yes, of course. We have to live together, haven't we? All three of us. Other standout episodes in the first series include Second Chance, which features a memorable guest appearance from Paul Copley, a two-parter, Lost Sheep and Guilt, featuring Peter Barkworth, um, an episode set uh, in a monastery um, called Good Friday, and finally, the, an episode with a very long title, which apparently John Brayson, the writer, had always wanted to use, which is Be the First Kid in Your Block to Rule the World, which is all about whether Curtis can escape from Brussels and whether the Condide will be discovered to be the headquarters of Lifeline. And that one was written by John Brayson and directed by Victor Sretellis. I do hope I have whetted your appetite for watching Secret Army either again or for the first time. If it's the latter, then I am so, so envious of you. All that you don't know, all that's to, all that's to come, all the twists. Um, it's one of those rare series that just gets better and better as it goes along. If I can just briefly promote the book that I wrote in 2008 called The Complete Secret Army, that probably contains everything and anything you'd ever want to know about the series. Basically because I couldn't stop researching, couldn't stop um, writing it, because I, I love the show so much. It contains interviews with all of the cast and the crew, and it has lots of information about the real wartime stories that inspired the series, um, and reviews, analysis, um, a lot more. It's not called The Complete Secret Army for nothing. I hope to be back to do a feature on the second series in the future, um, but for now, that's all from me. Thank you for listening. The BBC commemorates D-Day with a special episode of Secret Army. Any news of Monique? Uh, no, no, there's no trace of it anywhere. authorities will deal with them. You will please identify yourself? Correct. I am SS Standartenführer Ludwig Kessler. She isn't a collaborator. She worked for Lifeline. What do you mean she's not coming back? She's not coming back to you or to the Condit. Secret Army, Friday, 8 o'clock on BBC One. And thank you very much to Andy for yes, that. Yes, thank you, Andy. That was a lovely piece. Please come back. Yes. <laughs> We want more from you. We do. And I'm sure he'll be happy to do that. Yes. Right, next, Warren joins us on the sofa. Hello. I can see him over there now. Yes. And first of all, we're going to talk about uh, the late Bernard Hepton. Yes, he sadly passed away in July. Now, obviously, 
there's Secret Army, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. which uh, Andy has already talked about. But Warren, mm-hmm. I see you've got a big piece, well, a small piece of paper. Can you write small? <laughs> you've been making some notes about Bernard Hepton, haven't you? What, yeah. what would you like to tell us about Bernard Born Hepton? in West Riding in Yorkshire. Aye. Yeah, on the 19th of October, 1925. Mm. Were you there? I wasn't at the time, no, no, no. no. A couple of years younger for me. Oh, yeah? Mm. Yes. Um, yes. I don't know about you, but I remember him in Colditz. That's my overriding memories. Colditz and Secret Army. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had um, what I describe as bog brush hair in Colditz. <laughs> but um, I've been revisiting Colditz recently. Yeah, we've done up to about... Oh, my, about three quarters into the first series of cold it's we yeah. must actually start it up as, as with all things we have a big sort of splurge yeah. and then something happens and yeah, then and we, we sort of get yeah. distracted by something else so mm. there's all these series that we're sort of like halfway through isn't yes. it yes i like his portrayal as the camp the camp commandant, commandant. Yeah. yeah because um Anthony Valentine plays the nasty yeah officer, that's in the second series yeah. we haven't got that far yet but um in the last episode of um, not to blow anything out of proportion but um, the war comes to the end and they get liberated Mm. Um, they're talking about how they've been treated by the commandant and they say to the Americans before they take him away look after him, he's looked after us very well Mm. Um, but yeah and Secret Army, I I remember as a child seeing Secret Army and looking at the book that you've you've, looking at the cover I remember the railway line Mm. and then he's appeared in Cat Weasel in 1970 Yes. yes, that's in the House of the Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Um, You've seen a lot more Cat Weasel. I can't remember much Cat Weasel. I think he's like recording sounds or something like that. He's got a tape recorder, I th- vaguely seem to remember. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd, need, I'd need to sort of look that one up again. I've got, I've got the novelisations of, of the two Cat Weasel series and I read them. I think it was Cramble Middle School had them in the in the school library, so that's where I first came across Cat Weasel. I don't remember it being on the telly. Yeah, I remember reading the books. That's that's the thing. But, Cat Weasel uh, says, "Do not play <laughs> in water towers." Yeah. Yes. but yeah, I mean, Cat Weasel was really good for each week. They'd have a really solid guest star. Yeah, because yeah. Kenneth Cope's in one, yeah. isn't he? And they cast it really well. I think mm. so. Yeah, to get somebody like. Bernard, he- Bernard Hepton. The quality, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The quality and the caliber of caliber of, caliber of Bernard. Mm-hmm. It's, um, he he play. He's very identifiable, isn't he? Whoever yes. he plays, he's sort of the everyman in some way. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we've just seen him in uh, Village Hall a couple of we? weeks ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yes. we got Village Hall for 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 who? guest stars, really. Well, yeah, yeah. but for, I was going to say we got it for our birthdays, yes. didn't we? Because uh, yes. we've done a little video about we did about mm-hmm. what we've got. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what nineteen. When is it from? Nineteen seventy-four. Mm-hmm. Um, the episode they'll almost always be in England. Yes, because there's it, the the episode's about um, the street they live in. Him and the rest of the people that are in the hall. Uh, there's a gas leak. Yes. So the police um, evacuated them and they take them to the village hall. Yeah. Um, with all the animals. With all the animals, and then the Dogs animals and get cats. taken to the police station to live, to be at the police station. Um, and they'll be returned when they go back the next day. And, yeah, he's he's sort of like... You get the idea that he's very lonely, the mm. character. So the way he makes up for being lonely and not having anybody at home is to get involved in the community. Mm. And by doing so, he annoys everybody else. He's one of those people that organises everything, doesn't yeah. he? So yeah. everybody's in the in the 
in the village hall trying to sleep. And he keeps putting the light on. Yeah, and he's like, who would like a cup of tea? Mm. And, you know, and I'll give you an alarm call at, mm. like, 7am and all, all and this. Back, the, the, his watchdog's luminous. And, yeah, oh, yeah, I've got a luminous watch. Yes. That's, that's his proud boast, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Yes. And it, you feel quite sorry for him, yeah. as well as can, as being able to see why everybody's intensely irritated well, that, yeah, by him. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's a really clever piece and a really great performance. It's written by Jack Rosenthal. Yeah, you, 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 you start off thinking he's an annoying, mm. you know. And then you see the loneliness behind and the And then you, you end up feeling sorry for him yeah. as well. So it's, it's a great sort of character mm. arc over yes. the, the sort of 50 minutes, 50 minutes. or so of the... Yeah. Of the play, yeah. and I, I also remember him for Six Wives of Henry VIII, the the Keith Michelle, uh, and Elizabeth R, where he plays Thomas Cramner. All Obviously, right. he's not in Elizabeth R very long because Cramner's, I think, only in the first episode. Yeah, um, when it's obviously when Mary the First is on the throne because Cramner was burned by Mary the First for being a heretic. Yeah. Because he wasn't a Catholic. <laughs> I can imagine as a person he was what I would say is a, a an old school gentleman. Yes. Uh, a gentle yeah. soul, yes, but uh, an yeah. absolute professional. Yep, yeah, because yeah, he also plays Crook in 1985. We've got that one. Oh, in the Bleak, bleak in House. Bleak House. Yeah. Oh, blimey. Yeah, we have yeah. got that, but we haven't watched it. No, we? We, haven't we haven't finished watching the 1950s one. Yet. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're a few so, decades behind when yeah. it comes to um, Bleak House. He's stalled across, as we say, of about six decades, yes. isn't he? Yes, and I also remember him for the Charmer as well. All right, because he's he's. Um, Obviously, Nigel Havers is is it's it's weird. It's a strange series, The Charmer, because Nigel Havers is a con man in there and mm. a womanizer and a murderer, I think. Oh, and um, uh, Bernard Hepton is effectively the goodie, but you don't want him to succeed. You want Nigel Havers' character to succeed okay. because he's he very has much more charm and yes, charisma, and, and he's got he's very much Savoir sort of, fair. Yes, Ralph Gorsi plays in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's weird. That's what I remember him for. But yeah, he's a, he's a superb actor. He's in Smiley's People. And, well, he drops up in um, One Clevedis as yes. well. Mm. Yeah, he's in a couple of episodes of that. I can't remember what he plays. Palace, I think. Yes, but it? I can't remember what, what the character does. He plays does. a palace. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got a good range, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, this is the thing. He mm. has got a good range, hasn't mm. he? Well, yes. Yeah. Because I think, you know, you're saying about um, Colditz and then compare him to In Village Hall. Mm. Yeah. And they're very, very different characters. Yes. And you'd almost think they were played by different people. Mm. It's that thing about Ronnie Barker, isn't it? Yeah. That, you know, Fletcher is unrecognisable as, as yeah. Ronnie Barker. Yeah. Mm. And, and the same is true for a lot of sort of Bernard's performances. Yeah, because you, you have mm. Fletcher and you have Felix. Yeah. Mm. They, they are very, very, you know, different, each of his sort of characterizations, And that's the real skill of a... And I think that's what we lose nowadays because people seem to get buttonholed mm. into yes. particular castings producers net don't seem to seem people to be that people can do different things yeah and i think 70s and 80s they did um cast against type as yeah. well which is really mm -hmm. good and also because he probably wasn't a huge household name he was able to go in and do small roles and lots of different yeah, things he was yeah he was one of the um it's like the chap who um started appearing an australian chap who came over here studying period in emergency ward 10 they would pop up in the uh, the Avengers, and this name has temporarily um, eluded me. But um, he would turn up quite regularly in quite a few um, TV dramas, a, um, BBC and ITV. Mm -hmm. 
but it's one of those you feel comfortable when you see a, an actor that you might not know much about but you see them come into something regularly yeah. uh, Bernard Horsell yeah. yeah prime example yeah Bernard Horsell um, gives a stunning performance whatever he's in yeah but he's another reassurance actor yes I'm going to say, is it, is it that thing that, you know, you, you recognise the actor, but you don't necessarily know who what their name is? Yes. That yeah. you, you go, I, I know that face. Mm. I've seen him in other things. And, and that's, I think some actors would say that that is what acting is all about. You don't remember their name, but you remember the character that they play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the trick, isn't it? And yes. I, I think Bernard Hepton's... You know, performances are, are very much in yep. the, in that vein. Aren't it they? was like uh, the review you recently uh, on your video cast for Zed Cars. Mm. The two people sat in the pub. Yeah, mm. you saw as Mrs. McGlusky yeah. and Superintendent um, Brownlow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And although I know the name, the name of the actors, you referred to Mrs. McGlusky as Mrs. McGlusky, or Gwyneth, always going to be Mrs. Yeah. as Mrs. Yeah. McGlusky the whole way through. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because that's what she is to me. Yeah. She's the character. She's yes. not, you know, she's the person behind the. So the, they the character. achieved what they needed to do as yeah. an actor. You, you've invented a character that yeah. is memorable. Yeah, and, you've uh, made, and that, yeah. that 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 yeah, you're not remembering the actor. You're remembering the performance. Yeah, mm. and. And that's Bernard, I think. Yes, Yes, very much so. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. And before we go, we should just say that Andy Priest now has a book out about Secret Army. Well, he did mention it. He did, but it's called Complete Secret Army, and it's available from all good retailers and And some bad ones. Let me lift it up. Did you say awkward retailers? All good retailers. (laughs) I'm going to lift it up. Go on, then. Ooh, my word, that's heavy. Ow, no, that's really heavy. That is It's very thorough. That is very thorough. Okay, All right. and we'll be back very soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. If we look out at the night sky, we can see millions of stars. And the stars we can't see, we can imagine. We can imagine them any colour and shape we like. But of course we cannot hear them. This star, for instance, this serene orb sailing forever through the silence of the sky, does it ring with the music of the spheres, or is it always silent? Or is it silent simply because, just now, the inhabitants are inside, safely asleep in their beds? Warren's here again, yes. on the Hello. sofa, and a few words about... Uh, Peter Fermin, I yes, think. Yes, who we lost earlier this year. Who we definitely should remember. Yes. Because of the effect he had on us as kids, I think. Yes, really. yes. All the wonderful series he was involved in. Yeah. I mean, Oliver Postgate and Peter Fermin sort of come as a pair, don't they, really? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've got Oliver Postgate's autobiography... We've got The Art of Small Films. Which is a wonderful book. book. Which is just over yes. there. And we, yes. I think we've done a video about that as well. Yes, we have, yes. But let's just talk about some of their, some of their work. Mm-hmm. So if I say Postgate and Fermin, Warren, what's the series that immediately comes to mind? Over the Engine. Over the Engine? All yeah. right. Okay, why Over the Engine? Uh, were you expecting Clangers? I didn't. Well, I didn't uh, know what you'd say. Okay. That's the thing. Yeah, no. Um, over the Engine was probably the first thing I saw from small films right okay and I can remember a black and white episode 
even though it was shown early 70s because that's my earliest memory of some kind of animation on the television yeah and i remember it wasn't in color yeah and it was a little steam engine and there was somebody doing a very bad welsh accent well, <laughs> a welsh accent I'm, welsh I'm good accent. at bad welsh accent uh, they're more you indian might, aren't they? you might have noticed yeah <laughs> um but there was a reassuringly smooth non-affected warm voice yeah following the characters round well that that'll be all of a post game yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and that was the child the childhood happy memory of feeling safe watching this mm. mm-hmm. because i think postgate and fermin are very interesting you know they create very unique little worlds yeah which are which are nice places to spend time. Yes, I, mm. I was going to say, they're nice worlds. They're yeah. so forth. Even Noggin the Nog, mm. which has got, obviously, not bad, the bad in. Um, everybody else in it is really nice. Even the dragon in it is say, nice. The dragon is treasure of the dragon's friendly society. Yeah, and I just love that. They love dragons. Yeah. Throughout they their, their history, they love dragons, yeah. don't they? They have a passion yeah. for dragons. Well, what about you, Lisa? Um, it's your... probably I have the engine for me as well. Right, okay. Yeah, because I, you know, I used to love I have the engine, yeah. and I love Idris the dragon who, who powers the boiler. And so, did you imagine that's what the whole of Wales was like, or or did you sort of know it was because it's the top left hand corner of yes. Wales, isn't it? Yes. Which ironically places it close to the village and the prisoner. Which <laughs> 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 Marion. Yeah. yeah. Which could explain a lot, actually. It could. Yeah, it could. yeah I just, I really loved Live of the Engine. And now I can, I mean, obviously we got the new series of Clangers. Mm. But I, if I have a bad day at work, I can watch the Clangers and it makes me feel so much better. Oh, the Clangers are just I warm, I just love they? it. They're just I love warm it. and giving you hugs, yeah. aren't I mean, they? when it came back, when the new series started a few years ago with Michael Palin doing the narration, I watched the first episode and it made me cry and I have no oh, idea no, why. I can't it, even no. tell you. It was just a, an instant reaction. You're taken back to a safe, uncluttered, uncomplicated yeah. world, aren't you? And it's the fact that they all love each other and they all help each other. And yeah. Even though the Soup Dragon is the most shameless mugger to camera I've ever seen <laughs> in all of my life. Oh, there's a camera over there. I looked yeah. down it. Oh, yeah. but it's, he, he, uh, the Soup Dragon is the um, Charles Hawtrey <laughs> of uh, yes. camera loving she's, she's shameless. And one yeah. thing I've just thought... Um, when we first went to Wales on the train, mm. and I know it wasn't over the, over the engine or anything like mm. that, it was just a standard sort of train, um, Southwest Trains job. Yeah. Uh, when you come through the tunnel, there's a sign that says "Welcome to Wales." Yes. But when you come from Wales into England, there's no sign that says "Welcome to England." No. Yeah. So I always thought that sort of "Welcome to Wales" sign was quite sort of over the engine ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, thank you for coming. You know, mm. for visiting. But I remember um, the sort of the schedule on sort of children's BBC. It wasn't really called that at the time. But you, you'd have you'd have your sort of shows, and then you'd have Blue Peter and what have you. And before the news, you'd have a five-minute cartoon. Yeah, quite often Paddington. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I was always very pleased when it was the Clangers because mm. um, that that was I always hoped it would be the Clangers before before the news. Um, I mean, you know, partly because of my interest in sort of space <laughs> and science and, and things like that. But uh, you're right; it, it is a very, very nice mm. place to visit, yes. sort of in, in your head, isn't mm. it? Um, and I think that's it's an escape, isn't it? Mm. Because you're now between, as you say, that gulf of leaving television for children, yeah, 
to suddenly being headlong into the news yeah. mm-hmm. and being in the grown-up world that perhaps isn't as quite rose-tinted yeah. as the world we are visiting at the moment. And I think that's a lovely transitional thing, though. Yeah, It makes you leave on a high and you're, you're warm, you're happy, time for tea. Yeah. That kind of... Yeah. But, I mean, Peter Furman is... is is more on the design side of these these words. And so he does he, such wonderful designs. Because yeah. oh, he's responsible designs, for the yeah. images you get on the yeah. on the yeah. screen. Um, so for something like Bagpuss, mm. you know, it's that... And again, Bagpuss was a bit of a mistake in, in, in yes. the sort of creation yeah, process. Because it was meant it? to be um, a marmalade yeah, sort of colour, Yeah, it came back it? the wrong colour. Yeah. And it's, it's iconic. And it's it? one yeah. of those things that it was it was a slight mistake, but they went with it. And that becomes the image of bag because yeah. we've got bagpuss upstairs. We have, you know. yes. Um, I mm. was watching uh, the BAFTA Awards mm. where he got his BAFTA in um, in two thousand and fourteen. It, it's available on um, certain social media sites, yeah. uh, and he's doing it. And all the time that he is doing his speech on his right arm, he's got bagpuss, yeah. and everybody's just transfixed <laughs> by bagpuss. Because doesn't, doesn't Bagpuss get a degree or something? No, yeah, when Peter Furman, he got an honorary degree from somewhere and he took yep. Bagpuss along, Bagpuss had a little mortarboard and a little cl- cloak. Little cloak. Yeah. Yeah. In 1987, mm. University mm. of Kent, he got a honorary Masters of Arts degree. <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's and, yeah, because that's right, he was in his mortarboard, wasn't he? Mm. he was he, And Bagpuss had his little mortarboard. And yeah. Came, yes. Yeah, it's just... Between Oliver Postgate and Peter Furman, they created so many wonderful characters oh, yes. and so many wonderful situations. I mean, you've got Pogel's Wood. Yeah. You've got the penguins, which is <laughs> wonderful. That's um, mad as a brush. It's, the yeah, it's just mad. You know, you come along and, and father's pegged to the line, drying yeah. out. And you're like, okay. <laughs> they pegged him to the line. Oh, brilliant. But, you know, and, and Bagpuss and the Clangers and... To be quite honest, every time somebody moans about the BBC's licence fee, I would like to say to them, I would happily play the licence fee for the Clangers alone. Yeah. Because it's totally worth it. And it's all filmed in a shed. Yeah. Yeah. Or it was. It was originally, yeah. But who needs a massive studio? Yeah. They're they're rattling something else, aren't they? Mm. With everything that they've made themselves. Yeah, it's just... Storylines they've penned themselves... And they're filming at the shed at the end of the garden. Mm. And, and it's become that's iconic. The thing, you don't need big budgets and big companies to create magic. And no. Postgate and Furman created magic. Yes, that's the thing. they did create it, yes. yes. And, and, you know, <clears throat> knocking the knock's brilliant as well. It's yeah. just, you know, it's it's great. Okay. Yeah. Well, anything more? Or? No, we just, do, I think. Yes, I'd like to say thank you to... To Peter and Oliver and everybody else for all their hard work. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you then. Okay. See you again then. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you to Warren for helping us yes, with that thank tribute. Thank you, Warren. Yes, that was it. Was he had some? He had a lot of notes. Actually, <laughs> he did a lot of. He notes. had more notes than I did. Yes, and he didn't get to use all of them. Warren so. will be back later in the issue. He will indeed. Yes. Um, but what have we got now? Oh, we've got Martin Holmes we returning. Have. Hurrah! Yes, and he's looking at episode one of the Doctor Who story, Robots. 
In early July, the Doctor Who Season 12 Blu-ray arrived. But because of some footballing tournament or other, in our house the telly kept getting hijacked, so I was unable to watch it as immediately as I would have liked to. But because I've been thinking about doing another episode one piece about Tom Baker's first broadcast episode of Doctor Who, I ended up watching the DVD on a computer screen in another room. And these are the thoughts I came up with. Doctor Who, Robot, Episode 1. New season, new title sequence, new Doctor. The generic BBC One trailers for this new season really didn't tell us all that much about what to expect, other than that the show was back, and we didn't even get a Radio Times cover to tell us that. In fact, I'm almost certain that nobody outside the BBC got to see anything of Tom Baker in action as Doctor Who until the episode aired, but I've not yet been able to confirm this. I can remember the Exploding Minds trailer from a couple of weeks later, with Tom standing there grinning as the smoke cleared, but I really don't remember seeing anything at all of him before Robot burst onto our screens in late December 1974. Nevertheless, it's a story from a season of which I am very, very fond, and I genuinely think it was the book based upon this story, Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, that helped me make the transition from someone who was simply a delighted viewer into an absolute fan of the programme. After that, sort of, brand new and now iconic and queen title sequence fades, the episode immediately starts with the Look Brigadier It's Starting recap scene from six months earlier, featuring Elizabeth Sladen and Nicholas Courtney, in which that strange dark-haired bloke replaced our lovely Uncle John, but on closer repeat viewing he no longer resembles the puppet Lord Charles. There were reasons why I'd thought this. My father used to send me out of the room whenever he thought something on television might upset me, and so I got quite familiar with the gas heater in the hallway under the huge mirror we used to have there. I also found that if I didn't close the living room door behind me and sat on the stairs, looking through the banister spindles, I could still see the telly from a blurry distance. Hence, my beloved, beloved telly-uncle John Pertwee transmogrified, and, because my less-than-perfect eyesight was as yet undiagnosed, the brief glimpse we got of his replacement had really resembled Ray Allen's puppet nemesis. Of such moments are tiny lives shaped. It's difficult now to realise just how unknown Tom Baker really was when the rollback and mix that was completed, and John Pertwee's face had turned into his. John Pertwee was famous. John Pertwee had been doing the job for five years. As far as almost everyone was concerned, John Pertwee was the Doctor. And this bloke, well, he was almost a total unknown, wasn't he? What on earth were the BBC thinking? Yet hindsight is a peculiar thing because he is, of course, quite brilliant, right from the word go. In a magical ten-minute whirlwind, and yes, it is astonishingly only ten minutes, if that, the tour de force that is the mighty Tom seizes the part and makes it wholly his own. So much so that, despite the fact that John Pertwee was still filming scenes elsewhere while some of this was going on, the viewer is already, to a certain extent, wondering, John who? Whilst the brigadier is phoning for the M.O. Dr. Sullivan, Tom lies on the floor burbling about messing with human history and the brontosaurus being large, placid pause, and stupid, and squares on hypotenuses and why is a mouse when it spins. Gobblerduke, but spectacularly, fizzingly delivered Gobblerduke. The warrant officer, formerly known as Sergeant Benton, played as ever with underplayed Thank Your Lucky Stars Charm by John Levine, appears with the report and has a beautifully understated exchange with the brigadier about the matter-of-fact recent transformation of their scientific adviser. So it happened this time which is another nod back to that previous time when he didn't. 
I often wonder whether this is the first time that the Brigadier actually believes in such transformations, despite being told about them and all the evidence that's stacked up between Spearhead from Space and the Three Doctors, but you never can tell. He's such a pragmatist, that dear old Brig. And whilst the Doctor is now under the personal care of Dr Sullivan, everything else at Unit H quarters this morning is just routine, or about as just routine as things ever get at Unit HQ. You take a breath and watch a security guard on a military base being murdered by a metal-limbed creature or creatures unknown through the means of a square, multi-prismed filter and some ominously sinister and slightly bleepy electronic music. The guard dies, but the guard dog simply yelps off to consider its career options. After seeing a side view of an obviously inhuman shadow projected onto a nearby wall, Back through the point-of-view prisms, we see the arms of the metal-limbed creature or creatures unknown, opening a vault door, possibly or probably not, left over from the Fort Knox set in Goldfinger, grabbing a file and making off with it. Back at unit, Sarah Jane appears wearing an alarming white sun hat, and the brigadier starts telling this most favoured journalist about the fact that some top-secret plans have been stolen because, with the Doctor out of action, he has no one else to tell, which all seems rather sad, especially as he's obviously spent the last three weeks brooding over the empty corner of the lab whilst John Pertwee was lost and slowly dying in the time vortex. Sarah seizes her opportunity to use this moment to persuade her most influential of contacts into getting her a visitor's pass for the rather alarming-sounding government scientific ideas body, also known as the Think Tank. And whilst we discover that the old girl's not sure Dr Sullivan is the right sort of chap to be looking after the Doctor, we are assured that he's a first-class fellow, and as they head off to the Briggs office for some form-filling, we learn that whilst the Brigadier also considers himself to be a little old-fashioned, Sarah knows that he's a bit of a swinger, which back then probably meant he's get his groove on after a couple of G&Ts at the officer's mess. At least, at least we hope so. The Doctor, lurking in the corridor, carrying his boots and wearing a long nightshirt and black velvet jacket ensemble, watches them leave and, to a certain amount of funky music, sneaks into the unit lab and happily spots the TARDIS, only to, less happily, find it locked. In an almost direct parallel to a similar scene in his predecessor's opening story, he frantically starts looking for the key, only to find it hidden in the best and most natural place possible, one of his boots. And so, with the Doctor about to flee, and perhaps meddle unwisely with a far distant supercomputer or twelve, we meet Lieutenant Harry Sullivan, as played with such mastery by the lovely and much lamented Ian Martyr. The sparkle between the two actors is immediate as they discuss definitions of sick bays and infirmaries, and which one of them is the more bona fide of the two doctors in the room. To prove his fitness, the definite article, Karate Chops a Wooden Brick, without saying hi, runs on the spot, borrows Harry's stethoscope to check both of his hearts and has a good old look at his brand new face in a handily placed shaving mirror, so it is his reflection that dismisses his old nose without transforming into a photograph of John Pertwee. But still, he couldn't stand there chatting all day. He'd got things to do, supercomputers to mind-scramble and so on. His exasperation and frustration at how to prove how well he is leads to a beautifully choreographed skipping routine with the two actors nose-to-nose as Tom rhythmically chants an old skipping song. It's no surprise that Elizabeth Sladen thought that she'd need to up her game with this magical pair around. Moments later, the Brigadier and Sarah return to find Harry locked in a cupboard and the TARDIS making its dematerialisation noise, meaning that Sarah has to bang furiously on the doors to get her first proper scene with this brand new, new Doctor. And it's beautiful. All in a portent of future times past about hating goodbyes and the fact that he can't leave because the Brigadier needs him, and reminding him that he's still Unit's scientific advisor, 
and a final dawning recognition of his friends that would be mimicked and turned back to front in Peter Capaldi's opening scenes half a lifetime or so later. And all with Harry still lurking at the bottom of that cupboard. Without two robot scenes to indicate the passage of time, Terence Dix might just have written an almost perfect ten-minute minisode to introduce a new Doctor, because, th because these are ten minutes of sheer poetry. This scene is bracketed by the two robot raid scenes, the second of which involves an electric fence, a security guard trying to read his newspaper, a flimsy-looking plank failing to secure a door, an exploding telephone, and the fear-filled, metal-armed, throat-grabbing death of Dalek performer-in-chief John Scott Martin, adding to his on-screen death tally, but, surprisingly to me because I remembered him as being the first victim, making it alive through far more of episode one than he did with the Green Death a season and a bit ago. Rifling through some orange plastic storage boxes, some electronic parts are taken by a metal-limbed creature or creatures unknown, whilst some ominously sinister and slightly bleepy and electronic music starts to become rather catchy in an unlikely-to-ever-bother-the-pop-charts-all-that-much kind of a way. Back at Unit HQ, Harry Sullivan enjoys a bit of business checking his own heart with his dodgy stethoscope as the Doctor dresses for action four times over in a possibly deliberate attempt to make his eventual costume seem relatively normal after the relatively sober lordliness of the Pertwee look. The costume is eccentric, yes, but also instantly iconic, and the genius of Dix is that, after the Viking, the King of Hearts and the Harlequin, and some delightfully characterful silent movie face acting from Tom, it actually seems rather tame in comparison, despite the hat and scarf, in a manner that a straightforward reveal might not have been. In fact, the reveal is almost a throwaway. It isn't dwelt upon. Immediately, it seems to be saying, I am the Doctor, and this is what I wear now. Get used to it. And the viewers, still riding this whirlwind, probably already have. And so, with a fizzing, crackling sense of urgency, and no time to lose, this completed new Doctor bounds into action and off on location to investigate not the daisiest daisy, but the squashiest dandelion. Starting off in the background of a two-shot fe featuring Harry and the Brigadier, we find the Doctor examining a dandelion with the jeweller's lens in his eye. And I genuinely think that the by-my-calculations-of-the-resistance-of-vegetable-matter-this-dandelion-has-been-stepped-on-by-something-weighing-a-quarter-of-a-ton speech is the moment that Tom became cemented as the Doctor for me, and I still utterly adore that moment to this day. Some people will try and tell you that Tom Baker's tenure only really begins with the Ark in Space, but I think that such people are dead wrong. Tom, as the Doctor, begins right here, right at the beginning of Robot, and he is so instantly and completely the Doctor in this that it's suddenly very difficult to imagine anyone else playing the part. Another adorable moment follows when the Doctor seems terribly pleased to have deduced that the top-secret list on the Brigadier's clipboard represents the components of a disintegrator gun, and it can be no coincidence that the nose tap that follows was mimicked by the curator in the 50th anniversary special nearly 40 years later. Who knows? Sarah, meanwhile, arrives at the think tank, and we get to meet shifty old Jellico, who immediately signals by his shifty manner that things are afoot and Miss Winters, in her glasses and beige power suit, who immediately undermines the sisterhood by virtue signalling her way to some dodgy moral high ground at Sarah's assumption of a masculine director in what, at the time, was a male-dominated culture. For the put-down alone, we immediately dislike her. As double acts go, Hilda Winters and Jellicoe don't really match up to some of the great pairings created by Robert Holmes over the years, but they're suitably devious and memorable enough, I suppose, and Jellicoe and Winters would make a great name for a shop, wouldn't it? 
Next, Mrs. Dennis Waterman, Patricia Maynard, plays Miss Winters in her only appearance in the series, although she's been in practically everything else. Formerly Sergeant Osgood in The Demons, Alec Linstead plays Jellicoe, a slippery customer who isn't even worthy of a first name. In a later appearance in Doctor Who, he would simply be ahead. But if you want to get ahead, call Alec Linstead. Meanwhile, in a unit Land Rover somewhere near to where the last break-in occurred, Tom lollops on the seats as a very antithesis of what John Pertwee might have done in similar circumstances. There's a little bit of Holmesian deductive reasoning when he works out that, if he's right, and he says in a slight heart back to his Pertwee-ness, he invariably is, the next thing they will be looking to steal will be a focusing generator. So now we all know how to build one. The Doctor explains that their perpetrator might not be human and how they ought to be thinking about locking the next door before it is broken into, which leads to a Greyhound leader call sign moment from the Brigadier, Klaxon, as he puts the word out to protect Emmett's electronics, which, in a strange moment presumably designed to warn the audience that the next location might prove disappointing, he describes as a smallish factory, which on some level, you rather hope might have been international electromatics. Meanwhile, back in the grounds of the think tank, a place where ladders hang on high external walls just in case you might need to make a quick exit, Sarah's chat mentioning, oops, I probably shouldn't have mentioned knowing about that, a disintegrator gun, seems to upset Jellicoe so much that his dreadful suit starts to curl, possibly because he hasn't any hair, which, to, which can, well, possibly from the shine of the sweat pouring off him. Meanwhile, Sarah pops uninvited into a restricted area which is found to be empty. She makes a pointed mention of Professor Kettlewell, who seems to have departed Think Tank, after all of that fuss in the press we learn very little more about. Although she has to be saved when she slips on a patch of something oily on the floor that presumably has not slipped from Jellicoe's now extraordinarily shiny head. Over at Emmett's, the military are guarding the factory in full unit force of about six. Standing with the Doctor and Harry in a Land Rover, looking for all the world like a jigsaw I still have in a box somewhere, the Brigadier's description of the now impregnable surroundings sounds like he's been casing the joint for weeks, although we'd never suspect dear old Alistair of being behind such skullduggery, would we? The Doctor's reference to the Titanic disaster, which we'll come to know one day was nothing to do with him, is illustrated by a glug 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 as he sinks down into the front seat of the Land Rover. Of course, it is the Doctor who points out the Brigadier has left one direction very much uncovered, and, as if on cue, a massive saw-tool thingy bursts through a nearby floor, alerting a guard who fires off his machine gun to no avail, and gets well and truly deaded for his trouble by a multi-limbed creature or creatures unknown. It's hard life in unit. Tom, like a great big ball of boundless new energy, dashes off in response, losing his hat as, as he goes. But it's all to no avail. The very large rat has successfully escaped from a place into which it was until recently believed a very small cat could not get into, although it's a rather nice touch that the Doctor measures off the depth of the tunnel using his brand new scarf. Missing out on all the life-threatening action not by havoc, Sarah has left the think tank and has gone to visit one Professor Kettlewell, a short scientist with the most astonishing hair, as played by Edward Burnham, the actor who played the Professor Watkins once employed by the largish electronics firm International Electromatics, back when the Doctor was a short of stature and beetle-cutty of hair. He plays him with an air of disillusioned distractedness, and we instantly love him and his peculiarly eccentric ways as he does a bit of business with an electronic gizmo and wishes Sarah Jane a good day as he tries to get rid of her after she cross-examines him about his wild earth-saving theories, which don't actually seem quite so wild these days. 
However, his manner changes after she's departed, and he retrieves a sandwich from the drawer of his filing cabinet as if to emphasise just what a lovable old absent-minded and probably quite harmless professor he really is. Sitting in her mustard-yellow two-seater open-topped sports car like the racy go-getter she most obviously is, because maybe she's a bit of a swinger too, Sarah realises that she still has some time left on her special think-tank pass for now slightly less favoured journalists, and suddenly she is, for one last Terence Dick scripted time, very much the Sarah Jane Smith intrepid girl reporter of the John Pertwee era. Meanwhile, Benton, the brig, Harry and the Doctor are examining a great big hole in the ground, the other end of the tunnel out of the vault. And whilst the Doctor suggests knowingly, because let's face it, he's already worked it all out, hasn't he, that the perpetrator might not need to breathe, they discover some huge rectangular footprints which suggest an adversary of the sort of stature that might just weigh a quarter of a ton in the right shoes. And that's the last we see of any of them for this episode, because for the remaining few minutes, it's pretty much all about Sarah, as she uses her obvious charms to get her way back into the think tank using the old left-my-notebook-behind ploy. As the guard goes off to check, she sneaks in, clambering over a wall and making her way back to that positively no-admittance door she barged through during her visit. And as a phenomenon, in a powder-blue suit, huge chunky heels and that blasted white hat she checks the slippery patch on the floor and gives it a bit of a sniff uh, just as she is discovered by hey guess what a robot not yet a giant robot but a robot nevertheless well we have been waiting for one of those to turn up ever since we noticed the story title in the radio times interestingly then and perhaps because she might be slightly more familiar with the audience than the new Doctor is at this point. After all, there was still the risk that nobody would actually give much of a damn about this wildly eccentric not Pertwee yet. It is Sarah who gets to feature in the first cliffhanger of the series, as the eponymous robot is finally revealed, although not, as yet, in all its full frontal magnificent glory. We do get a glimpse of its massively impressive head, burning brightly red with internal lamps and polished to the very shiniest of sheens that makes even Jellicoe's pale in comparison. And, in that point-of-view effect we've already seen several people murdered to, we close on a close-up of Sarah Jane's face as the killer robot, for with this effect we realise this must be so, closes in on her. Crashing end titles on a lovely piece of television that completely reinvents the entire world of that 11-year-old institution that is Doctor Who in just 22 and a bit minutes. Once upon a long ago, back in the days of video, I decided to do a complete Doctor Who rewatch, and like the Philistine that I am, possibly because of having just bought and watched the Tom Baker years, although I can't be sure of that, I decided to start with Tom and close the loop, should I get there, with John. And I hope you'll agree. It's a cracking place to start. Thank you to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. Another lovely article. I really enjoyed getting season 12 on Blu-ray. Yes. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to getting season 19. Yes, it's just been announced in the last week, hasn't We it? were speculating as to what the next one were was going to be. And yes, I, you guessed correctly. I, I, said did, it's... I, I honestly didn't know, no. but I thought season 19 probably needs less work on it and has got more sort of opportunities for interesting bits and pieces than mm-hmm. 
than maybe season seven or something yes. like that. So I'm quite pleased I got that right. Yeah. But yeah, season 19 should be an interesting uh, it choice for Blu-ray. It and it will look really good because yes. there's, there's a lot of film stuff mm-hmm. um, that will yeah. scrub up very nicely. But I think certain people may have seen Black Orchid too many times recently. <laughs> Possibly. Mm. Um, but now Nick and Paul um yeah. have just squeezed their way onto this issue they have. Th- um have. they delivered this a couple of days as ago. we were editing basically yes. but i really wanted to get nick and paul on here if yes, possible because they've been with us since the start yeah to thank to thank them for their yes. for their help um but they recorded it on the saturday that we did the shy life podcast with mm-hmm. paul um, and Yes. Uh, I mean, we helped with it by doing a sort of Skype piece for about, what, half an hour or yes, so? Yes, about 35 minutes. But Nick and Paul were just recording and doing stuff all through the day. So mm-hmm. by the time they actually sort of got round to doing the Saffron Still piece, you it know, they, they'd, had, they'd had a busy day, I yes. think. Yes. Um, so real thanks for them for yes. slogging on and, and, yes. and delivering and if there's um, one or two yawns in there it's quite understandable well i was going to say it was i think we'd gone to bed by the time Possibly, they were recording yeah. this yeah. i really don't know so, so here's nick and paul mm-hmm. with the saffron still story generally known as adventure six listeners around the archives it's me paul the shy yeti i'm here with my friend nick goodman hello uh, hello also a contributor to this show and uh well uh Trevi and lisa andrew and lisa asked me to uh uh review my favorite sapphire and steel story and i couldn't do that without asking nick to join me well we've decided to do one of our reviews where we watch each episode and we make comment at the end of each episode so we've just watched episode one of story six the final time trap sometimes mm. called the time yes. trap it's uh, unofficially yes. one of the fan titles uh, they're, they're, they've all got fan titles that uh now I've always been a fan of the four-part stories, most of all of Saffron Steel, and so it was going to be a, a choice between story four and story six. And um, when I was younger, I probably would have said that story four was my favourite. It's got more sort of not very exactly gory moments, but more shock sort of moments where there's something horrific. But and, and and you know, story four does have all the stuff with the when you think about all the photos and what's going on and. Um, it's it, it sort of leaves you thinking after it's finished, but uh, I don't know. The, the more time goes on, the more I think that story six is my favourite, just by a very small margin. Uh, but I can't really tell you why. It's a funny one. Uh, what what do you say? What do you say, Nick? The thing is, uh, with Sapphire and Steel, it is a superb series. There's um, some very good. So I think there's only two that I kind of think are, are just under the under the wire, really. Um, but four is my favourite. 
Um, like I mean, I, I don't mind the six parters, but like you, there's something very neat about these two four parters. Um, I think the Mamma No Face, the fourth one, would be my favourite because of, funnily enough, probably because of the very um, things you mentioned, the, the whole concept of the photos. It's an ingenious idea, very scary. But I have to say, I have I have a tremendous liking and respect for this uh, time trap story um, because it's a masterclass in minimalism and prosaic kind of combining the prosaic with the kind with the mysterious and it takes time this is there are two things here that you won't get in telly today and that's patience and um just that light attention to detail and um you want to know what you want you want to know what's happening going to happen next that's right the things that do happen are very um they just creep up on you don't they yeah i i take my hat off to pj hammond with all every single one of the saffron steel scripts because they just there's a masterclass in absolute kind of atmosphere and that sort of wonderful little spooky touches where you do like you say you do want to find out more and but at the same time you kind of there's a very it's very unsettling and and that's good but and um, I have to say also um I'm a great fan of um there's a there's a great sort of um uh, I don't know. People look down their nose at telly done like theatre, and they they, they say, "Oh, it's done like theatre." Like, oh, you wouldn't like old TV. It's like done like theatre. What is so bad about that? Um, because it's it was always supposed to. It was always supposed to be small. It wasn't supposed to be big like film. Mm. And I think um, TV as theatre is just as um, relevant as TV as film, which is what is pretty well done it all the time now and um this uh, saffron steel is possibly the ultimate sort of example as as tv you could put this on as a theater show mm. because the, the sets are so uh minimalist but they're, they're still believable and you've got a wonderfully patient contrast between the two different times you've also got a great cast i mean you've got edward de souza wonderfully um uh, wonderful as the serbric um adulterer man um, and he has that wonderful line, oh, we don't run the food, so you don't get the coupons. And, <laughs> and, and he's just... And it's nice to see Steel be out kind of co-bastarded by, uh, by someone, uh, as someone else. I, and I think another reason that uh, this one jumps ahead of four for me is that uh, Silver is in it, and uh, yes, I do like fun. Silver, and, and of course that's one thing that... Story four doesn't have so. David Collins's silver is just pitch perfect. The kind of character I wanted to see when I when I for, when this went out, I was thirteen, going on fourteen, and uh, I liked that sort of eccentric and light and light character. And um, David Collins plays it superbly, and um, it is a great character and a good contract. But I I do accept that he would not have worked in some other stories. Um, he actually picks up story three and um, and sort of shakes it around and makes it a lot more entertaining. He wouldn't have worked in four. Four is unremittingly grim and it needs to be unremittingly grim because it's because of the sinisterness of its idea. He would have got in the way in five um, and the kids would have just kind of... <laughs> because you had lead in in the first one and he certainly wouldn't have worked in two because that, that again that's too grim but you needed those grim stories with a little lightness of touch here this silver works perfectly in the story because 
um, you needed some con- contrast with kind of hu- trying to humour Edward de Souza's character. And there's some um, there's some humour with um, when he's playing the uh, the, <laughs> the fruit the, machine, the fruit yeah. machine, and That's he keeps winning. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, Sapphire points out that you're not always supposed to. Yeah. To, to win, <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. And David Collins, just the, the sheer innocence of uh, of his, uh, of kind of oh, <laughs> it's beautiful. I um, wonder why I wasn't enjoying. Really, my really, that's that's a lovely little gag. Um, but I'm I'm looking at the ATV. Of course, uh, were a doomed company, and in 1981, they were the franchise was about to be bought out, and that was the end of Sapphire and Steel. But um, it's interesting if if they had a mind to the to, to the future and the financing and things like that. It's it's interesting. Maybe they're trying to get some finance because when you look, it's the most it's it's advertising mad. It's there's luncheon vouchers, there's credit cards. If you look on on the on the wall and they get some marvelous attention to detail as well because the all the the sort of health and safety pictures and and. It's it's true. A picture tells a thousand things. You've got the the booze on the in the. It's just some lovely, lovely, and the and the and the speaking clock stuck in a time yeah. warp. That's that's a lovely creepy. And you in the first episode, you really you've got those little mysteries that are coming up, and yeah. you don't really know what's going on. You've got the the couple in the cafe, yeah. and you see a few ghosts, and yeah. you've got like a modern day. Uh, petrol station and yet a car from 1948 yes. and newspapers beautiful from... little con- <laughs> just supposings um, it's, it's, a, it's a very very neat piece and um, also I think maybe uh, PJ Hammond does I mean I think he shines uh, for me he, he absolutely shines with the photo story um, but he's had a break with Dr McDee you know and he's come back at the end of the year and he's, he's, he's fre- all the fresher for it and it makes, even though um, this ended up being the last one, and I think if you brought it down now, modern TV would spoil it. Uh, it really would. It, it wouldn't have the patience, it wouldn't have the, the playing. And it would want to build it up a lot more, the, the end yeah. would be, built, be being built up. From the, the yeah, it would, it would overplay it horribly, and it wouldn't have that lovely unfolding end. Like um, Steele's um, examination of the car, that should be... In theory, that should have been a really boring scene, but the 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 shit and Cyril Ornendale's music, um, that kind of slight tension in David McCallum's performance, and and you want to see the bits of the car, you want, yeah, and you wonder what's gonna jump out at you or whatever, and uh, and the cliffhanger is is relatively minimal. There's a time jump, and they're still not sure what it all means, but... Uh, but it, it implies something yeah. important's going to happen. Yes, but you don't uh, know which what. Which unnerves the, the heroes. And if, you, if you've got the heroes unnerved, then, you know, you're, you're onto a winner because, you know, the, the audience is going to... Oh, right, there's yeah. something... You get the feeling from, de- from, the, from the off, there's something happening here. Yeah. Um, and um, at the at the moment, you you you're worried for the, even though they're sort of not very helpful or cooperative, they you're worried about the characters because they're in this vulnerable position. And you know from the pr- previous stories that some of them don't get out alive, mm. like Tully, and um, and of course some of them get burnt up by like the the, the couple in in the sto- photo story. So there there's a the, there's also with all this kind of theatrical stuff, there's an element of danger. 
which is is thrown in as well. It's it's really is skillfully written and, and produced. Uh, for you know, for a cheap for cheap TV, and that's, let's face it, that's what it was. It was excellent, absolutely excellent. Well, uh, now I think it's let's time for us to the move on. Episode, yes, yes, episode two. So we've just watched episode two of Story Six of mm-hmm. Sapphire and Steel. What are your thoughts on that? Excellent. Um, <laughs> again, very patiently um, reeled out, and and the build up to the um, dis- the sort of discovery of um, Johnny Jack, which ultimately comes along. Um, I think the thing that um, permeates this story, which perhaps is makes it so unnerving, is that the the fact that the um, the characters seem particularly bemused and mm. uh, disconcerted by what's happening because they can't understand at the ba- at base level where, where the instructions coming from uh, even it's something they've never questioned is the actual vi- mission before and this this time is even though it's you know it's quite peaceful uh, and uh, it, it would appear that no one's getting hurt or whatever there you know you get the feeling there is actually something very wrong with this mission and uh, again, you got the good, 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 good contrast between uh, David Collings and um, and the two leads. Um, so yes, um, there's just lots of little unnerving things, like well, partic- particularly when the three of them see the ghost but realise that to him they're the ghosts. Yeah, um, yeah, that's sort of clever little switch around, and and uh, and just a little. It's just little things like that which kind of. Um, it have a little um, change of perspectives. Um, also, be able to, uh, J- John Boswell as the the old man has a really creepy face, um, and uh, yeah, everything's progressing very nicely. And I I love that bit where um, Sapphire appears to. Uh, I, I've never quite known what to make of that. Though. She when she, um, when Deborah D'Souza is flirting with her, and she she kind of does a woo, 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 and and uh, you almost said you know what, what she's projecting to him, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, lot, yeah, and there's sort of at the moment uh, the rain the rain started mm. and um, steel went out. To investigate, we don't know where he is, and the rain stopped now, but he's still not returned. I love these little time jumps as well. That's a really clever idea. Yeah. You see somebody walking up, but you see it, you see the faces of the people looking out the window, but you don't see, you don't the, see the, the actual character. Certainly not at that stage, anyway. And little little clues, and yeah, it uh, makes incredibly good use of its claustrophobic set. Mm, yeah. Well, I think we'll move on to episode three. Yeah. Was it to part three? Part of they call. Um, I think it's called part, but it's part, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, some series <laughs> do episodes and parts. I think with with this, they don't seem to um, they didn't seem to bother with t- titles, episode numbers, well, anything. They just so there, you were t- telling me that there's a slight difference in the title sequence in this story. Yeah, oh yes, that's right. And basically, because uh, I don't, I can't remember them doing this for. The Creature's Revenge, which is the other one with silver in it, but uh, there is a different recorded the, the sound on the uh, this the titles at the end here are or well, the beginning are different, and it's uh, gold is replaced with mercury, and um, that if you listen to the titles at the very beginning, they sound a bit drunk, <laughs> <laughs> and I I don't know 
and maybe Cyril was having an off day but um <laughs> that yeah it's interesting that uh it's interesting they they uh, re- re- kind of replace mercury replace him with mercury mm. on to episode three so we've just finished episode three and uh yeah uh, um more mysteries and indeed it's, it's rolling out very nicely uh, it, it, we're, there's, there's a little bit more clarity as to uh the kind of threat they're facing now and uh and then the unpredictable thing of it all, all the disparate characters actually were there for a reason to trap them with her although the woman seems to be um not the same as the three men yeah um uh, she's got that lovely little face Joanna Kirby it's, it's um I saw an episode recently of the Sherlock Holmes you know she's got a very expressive little face mm. so yeah the uh, standout moments um, for you I... well I think I think the whole with Johnny Jack I mean it's a, it's a lovely kind of uh performance from uh Christopher Feb is it Fairbanks? Yeah, I think so. He adds a new dynamic to it, and of course he's uh, on come steel, and, and, and the whole thing with the, the, the duplicating the, uh, the, the the tambourine, only in saffron steel, you know. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> and then, uh, of course, Silver gets split from the when he goes to uh, sort of try and leave the compound, yeah. as it were. There's a nice sense of claustrophobia mm. building, and uh, and and now we we kind of yeah whoa you know the, uh, now he, the threats being revealed and uh, yeah yeah it's good it as he tried to so we found a uh, sort of force field and yeah on, on tapping on it they were aware of it and mm. the three yes who had appeared to be relatively innocent were sort of clicked into revealing their true colours. Two, two things here. One, I, I didn't realise until I went back to my 1982 diary that um, I'd only seen two episodes of this. When when I sort of first saw it again in 1990, when I got a copy, um, I, it, you know, it sort of came back fresh to me. I was I remember the service station, I remember Johnny Jack, I, I remember the man, and, and I particularly remember the end. Um, but I hadn't I'd completely forgotten I'd not seen the first two episodes I think it's because it was so very badly publicised the, the mm. serial and um, uh, literally I stumbled upon it by accident the sun was saying come out to play the other thing is um, this whole thing with the the, 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 the higher beings that have um, kind of sent uh, the transient beings to, to um, kill off Saffron Steel um, there is a theory in fan circles because I'm, I'm a member of a fan Facebook page on Sapphire and Steel um, that the end of the first epi- f- uh, the second story with Sapphire and the uh, railway station because they sort of sacrificed life for that bloke and, and sort of damaged time uh, there is a school of thinking that thing this is the sort of consequence of that and their, their time you know the, the, the powers that be um uh, kind of getting their revenge about it, uh, mm. against the damaged time, so um, it's sort of there is a theory that's past catching up with them, which kind of makes sense really because they're, they're sort of um, certainly Sapphire seems to be very much aware of them. So uh, now we're on to episode four. 
Yeah. Which is the last ever episode. Yes. And I have to say, this came uh, nine months after the end of Blake 7, and I must admit, this is just as uh, chilling and effective an end as Blake 7. Mm. Here we go. Well, we've reached the end of episode four. Yes, indeed. And that, that's an incredible ending. Um, mm. As I say, like Blake 7, um, although it's sad to see the end of the series, if it's going to end, then it needs to go out with an end like that, which kind of, whoa. You know, it's, mm. And it, well, in the rest traditions of uh, Saffron still enigmatic, but at the same time, downbeat. Which, um, it's it, like Blake 7, it feels, it, that feels right for the show. And um, I've never had a problem with it, really. Although it's come back to life in Big Finish productions, but uh, yeah, I don't yeah, really know. Story. Don't really know enough about the Big Finish ones to know whether it's actually come back to life or whether it's supposed to happen before. The, that I don't. Yeah, I've always meant to kind of find out, but uh, um, yeah, it's a, again marvelous stuff, and I love the change of um, style at the end. You know, when the the, the woman uh, is sort of uh, is there with her morning stuff on appropriate for the mm-hmm. um, for Saffron Steele's demise it's, it's terrific you almost feel when uh, they have the box and you always feel that they're they're winning and they're going to win yes and the fact that they kind of uh, trump head to Susan so it keeps you guessing right to the end it's great um and and overall, uh, incredibly clever um, and ingenious story. Um, and uh, PJ, PJ Hammond, hats off. Uh, yeah, I like he. I I always felt that when I did see um, Stefan Steele, it was when my parents were out, and I used to watch it with the babysitter because uh, I was I was only sort of eight when this was on. Yeah. Um, but weirdly, I can only remember story four and story six. Like you could remember which episodes you'd missed. But, well, I, um, I, could, um, I couldn't actually remember which ones I missed because um, I, I read the diary and I thought, oh right, I didn't get, didn't catch the first two episodes. Um, yeah, and I can't, I, I, can't, I couldn't tell if I, well, I felt like I saw a few episodes. Yeah, I um, I do remember. Uh, I I saw the last two episodes of this, and I saw. Because the first story back in '79 clashed with the Doctor Who repeat of Pirate Planets, you know, sort of, it didn't really get much of a look in, and I and I I wasn't really in the habit of watching it. Uh, the only bit I remember from Story One, apart from as also apart from reading about it in Look In, was um, the the very very last shot of Sapphire saying Rob goodbye, um, despite the. Um, ITV strike. I I saw all of story two, um, story three. I saw in little bits. I I don't know. I, I, again, I kept missing. I think by by story three, I was at senior school and I was doing homework and things like that. I saw all of story four. I saw the only the third episode and the beginning bit of uh, episode six of story five, and like I say, I saw the last two episodes of this one. But the scheduling was such that. Um, and some of the publicity was such that it just you weren't able to really catch up, you know, kind of do it justice. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's 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 a fine and actually to get um, 
two people as busy and high profile as Joan Lumley and David McCullum was quite a uh, for for a low budget um, show was quite a feat. But then the scripts were very good, so mm. uh, I think David McCullum was always very happy with it. But, uh, no, I, it's joy always a joy to watch. Mm, yes, um, and uh, as I say, I, I think it quit whilst it was ahead. Whether it whether they were sort of saying we're not making anymore because the franchise has run out, I don't know. But uh, uh, as I say, it's almost um, Samuel Beckett esque in its sort of um, very minimalism and very uh, symbolic um, thing. You know, like uh, there's, there's some short you know, the sort of unofficial business. They're wearing suits and you know there's sort mm. of uh, the different characters there. Fascinating. Thank you to Nick and Paul for yes, that. Yes, thank you. Thank you, boys. Yes, I always love a bit of saffron too. Yes, yes. yes. Though, yeah. though I, I think I prefer Adventure 5 to Adventure 6. Well, I, I and Adventure Four. I think we just need to get saffron steel out there yes. in sort of more general knowledge. Yes. I think because obviously, sort of old people like us remember it. Yes. But I'd love to see people doing some um, reactions to it on mm-hmm. on YouTube or something like that. Especially so. that last story with that last shot of them looking out the window in yeah. space. Oh, spoiler. Sorry. But, you, you know, I, I know we say, you know, obviously people like to react to Doctor Who and things mm-hmm. like that, but I think Saffron Steel is a very good one to, yeah. to, to dip yeah. your toe into the water. Just don't pick Adventure 3. No, okay. Fair enough. Right, um, coming up now, we've got um, Warren, mm-hmm. who's helping us with a piece on the, was it 1973? 1973, Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper sort of docudrama with series. Barlow and Watt from yes, well from, originally from Zed Cars, from Zed Cars Softly Softly, softly etc and so on yes and um, they're, they're looking into who the killer yeah. may have been but once we've done that piece we'll go straight into the end credits yes. I think because again this is going to be a two hour long mm-hmm. episode no matter mm-hmm. how much I try and edit it yeah but generally I think we'd just like to say thank you to yes. everybody that's thank helped us thank you for anybody to, that's helped us over these last couple of years to get to episode 25 yes We've now been doing this two years. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, I'm going to decide the end of season two around okay. the archives. Oh. So season one had 13 episodes. Season two had 12. Right. Um, so episode 26, mm-hmm. we're going to declare is season three. Okay. Um, we're just sort of nailing down what 
episode 26 and indeed 27 yes. might contain yes um we've got some possible um interest from 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 new people new but people, yeah. but until yeah. that's decided upon we won't we announce won't we, no. well, we, can, we can't say till we've no. got anything in the, in the can mm-hmm. um but yeah so the exciting times ahead i think for mm-hmm. For us, as we yes. as we go into the third year of Round the Archives, I yes. cannot believe we've done two years no, of it. Then. No, I, I wasn't sure it last more than one or two issues. Yeah, really. all that time ago. Did you honestly think, sitting on this th- sofa, that we'd be going into no, you know, twenty five plus episodes? No. no, no, I was quite nice to get to ten. <laughs> ten seemed an achievement, yeah. didn't it? So yeah, again, just everybody, you you have been brilliant, and thank you for yes. supporting us. Thank it you re- for supporting. Thank you for listening. Thank you for correcting us well, that, and that, giving us ideas. I really everything. love the fact that we get feedback. Yeah. And feedback from people that know what they're talking about. Because yes. you, you do this stuff and mm-hmm. you sort of send it out there. Yeah. And you think, does anybody really care what you do? And, and genuinely, it seems that people do. They do. Do care. They do. Yes. That's, so, that's brilliant thank you everybody and and we hope we haven't bored you too much over the issues no i think i think not uh, but yeah so jack the ripper mm-hmm. end credits and yeah. then see you in a month's time yes, for 26 for more stuff possibly less than a month because it's quite late this issue i know we shall see maybe mm-hmm. three weeks bye 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 <laughs> Hello, Lisa. Hello, Warren. Hello, Andrew. Hello. 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 Right, where are we going to travel to today? Today, we're going to, well, it depends what you mean, because we're going to travel to um, Birmingham 1973, initially. Yeah, I wasn't expecting you to say that, actually. To look (laughs) at the um, BBC series, Jack the Ripper. Yes. And it's Barlow and Watt. Ooh. investigate Jack the Ripper. So technically we're not going to London 1988? 1988? 1988, 1988, 1988, and the files have long since mysteriously disappeared. Yes, and I, I don't think the fact that a lot of the files have disappeared should be looked into in a sinister way. No, I think they just lost them. Yeah. Mm. It's but, quite understandable. Yes. So, but yes, so nobody will ever know who Jack the Ripper was. No. And the reason we're, doing, we're talking about this partly is because it's 130 years this month. That's nearly Trophy's age. Yes, since the, uh, the murders occurred or started were well, perpetrated, well, perpetrated. I like that word. depending on your point of view um the first murder was uh on the 30th or the early hours the 31st of august 1888. 1888 yes but it is possible that there was an earlier murder but we're not going to look at that we're going to look at the victims 
that were uh, the documented victims. Yeah, the five. Be- because there is there is a lot of supposition around. Uh, yes. Were there two or three others that perhaps beforehand and after even yeah. that were involved? But we're going to be looking at, uh, at yeah, the, the main players. At the five that uh, Barlow and Watt look at. Yeah. So now, just in case you don't know who Barlow and Watt are. Um, one fat bloke, one thin bloke. One fat bloke, one thin bloke. They're fictional policemen. They are. Played by Stratford Johns and Frank Windsor. And his uh, hat. And his hat. Though he doesn't have a hat. He doesn't wear his, no, his, his, hat, his, no. his trilby in this, does he? No, because he's inside. He don't wear a hat inside. They have a sofa, though. They do have a sofa. Like our sofa yes. here. Yes, and some whiskey. Always going to have whiskey yes. in the bottom drawer. Yeah. And... Um, they, the characters are dis- established in um, Z cars. Yeah. In then 1962. They, in 1962. Then they go on to be in Softly Softly and Softly Softly Task Force. And Barlow, Barlow is just about to get Bar- his own series. Barlow, Barlow is, is loud. Is, is large. Is large, yes. yes. Or he's, he's at the Home Office. Yeah. So this is the excuse for investigating the murders that he's at the Home Office and he has yeah. liberty to investigate uh, unsolved cases. I'll just say Barlow at Large started in 1971. Oh, right, okay. Did it really? So he's just about to be in Barlow at Large again then? Well, um, Mm. this is... Jack the Ripper is July to August 73. Oh, right, he's already been in Barlow at Large. So Barlow at Large has finished its second series. Okay. Yeah. There's there's only three episodes in the series one. Wow. And then ten in series two. It's almost almost used as um, as a pilot, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, but yes, yeah, so they um, so it's a docudrama. Yes, I is it, if a docudrama can be a docudrama if the two main protagonists are fictional? Yes, yeah, so. I, I think it can because mm. docudramas are are fifty fifty split, aren't they? Yeah, uh, truth and and fiction. I mean, the BBC has been very good at this. You you only have to think of things like um, the band series called uh, the band drama called War Game. Mm. Uh, about nuclear war that was a docudrama mm-hmm. but uh, uh, this is more lighter well yeah. actually it's, it's not it's really not lighter, lighter no, it but does have the most ridiculously upbeat theme too yes for, for people that are being slaughtered on the streets yes. it's quite um yes. and i do wonder if that's a conscious musical. choice yes because of the dark um subject yeah and i think that the characters of barlow and what peppered throughout mm. break up yeah. a lot of that as Rock well the nastiness yeah but it's it's um six episodes um each directed uh, directed by three different directors each director takes on yeah. two episodes yeah i found that it, it was interesting they didn't have a i think because of the scale of what they yes. were dealing with you probably couldn't have the same director yeah. for everything no and you so you've got leonard lewis who directs episode one the first two and episode four panic uh, Gilchrist Calder, which is a brilliant great name, name, brilliant name, who directs Double Event and Suspects, and David Wicks, who will go on to direct another version of the Jack the Ripper story in 1988, yeah. who directs Episode Three, Butchery, and Episode Six, The Highest in the Land. Now, I will say, Gilchrist Calder, who I've never heard of and never seen his name on anything else, is an absolutely superb director. Yeah. Because yeah. there is a scene in episode two of of um, Jack Ripper, the double event, where the camera is following one of the victims. And now, bearing in mind the cameras in nineteen seventy three wouldn't been, wouldn't have been that portable. No, it's superbly well done, and it's also very tense. Yeah, it's you know, I mean, I have to hold my hand up and say I watched most of these episodes 
feeling tense because of the subject matter because it's 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 a really nasty it's um, uncomfortable isn't it's it? uncomfortable yes uh, yeah. and i think that the way it's constructed um constructed and the fact that they have actually taken the time of not making a sensationalist drama out no, of it no no it's not sensationalized at all um, but, there um, was an there was an interesting if i throw in a bit of a yeah. background thing mm. um they moved the files of jack the ripper from scotland yard to the central records office whilst uh, and the last people to see what was left uh, the large majority of the uh, documents that were left was um the team who who wrote this and whilst they were moving the documents uh, a number of them went missing to the central criminal records they don't know whether they perished and people just threw them away mm-hmm. or people thought no we're not going to keep these because they're so old there's no point in keeping them mm-hmm. uh, and weren't weren't aware of what their re- relevance was yes. so literally this the team that put this together were the last ones to see the entire the, the, the documentations in its entirety mm. yeah i mean there, i have read a, a few books about this and in one of the books it does say that um a lot of the time if they ran out of space they would just pull a chunk of paperwork out and throw it away yeah and it did, they didn't look to see what no, file it was not at all. they just no. say well we're, we're not going to need that so we'll just throw that away yeah and so, you can understand that yeah, so possibly it's just it's because a lot of people think this is 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 a sinister thing in itself that they've lost they've got rid of the files because there's something in there that implicates somebody that doesn't want to be implicated but i think in in it's just human error you know the other thing you have to look at is is, is things like storage the, the, the facilities in which they would have stored these documents mm. it's lucky it actually lasted this long yes because these would have sat in um, you know after the investigation they would have sat in a dusty airless cupboard mm-hmm. quite happily rotting away perhaps if they got damp then that's yeah. that's that but let's look at one of the main players and one of my favourite uh, characters is the main investigating officer. Yes, which is um, Inspector Frederick George Aberline, born the 8th of January 1843 in Blandford. Blandford, Dorset. Which is quite local <laughs> it's to a us. a long way from the east end of it London, is. isn't it? It is. So any time you see a representation of, of Inspector Aberline on screen and he's a cockney, it's probably wrong. It, yeah. Because I think, and obviously you can't say what kind of accent he would have had. No. I but I think it would have been a more neutral accent. I think he would have got rid of his Dorset twang <laughs> because he wouldn't be taken seriously in London. Yeah, it would have been interesting to know what his accent would be like because he spent most of his, his service in the East End of London. Yeah, so maybe there was a bit of a... But of that a, was a cultural melting pot anyway. Yes. And people from yes. all around the world there. In yeah. fact, he has a nice set of side whiskers looking he at his face. He does, if, if that is indeed him. There is a picture that's allegedly him, but obviously there is no one that can actually no. Nobody about say that. No. Because he, he didn't have any children, so there wasn't any... I no. didn't know that. Oh, no. okay. Any memories of Blanford, Warren? Any stories of going to Blanford? Because there used to be a, a bus um, that went past our house every Thursday to go to Blanford. And I remember going in the tea rooms and having me long bun, <laughs> me iced bun, and coming home again in the afternoon. I, I, the only thing I can remember about Blantford is I bought my first Doctor Who magazine in Blantford. All right. At uh, John Levine and Sergeant Benton on the front. <laughs> I know we were laughing about that. Um, but, um, 1983? Do you know, I can't remember. It might have been. 1982? I can't remember. Mm. Um white cover white background big picture of benton i remember the gents toilet with no roof 
Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you remember that? Because <laughs> it had no roof. It had no roof, and I can remember using the lavatory, and um, it started to rain. I could see the stars. Yes, because it was yeah, and it started to rain. Yeah, right. I just remember the uh, where the buses used to park around the back of the car park, which was uh, yeah, the car park that used to flood. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, um, Kingsfields. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there we are. Anyway. <laughs> where, where the uh, steam rally, that was the first place it started off. Oh, right. Of Crown Fields. Crown yes. Fields. Crown Meadows behind there. Anyway, digress. Yes. Yeah, so, anyway. So, that's where um, Frederick Abilene was born in Blandford. In Bla- He's and a Blandfordian. He was. His father died in um, when he was quite young, about seven. In uh, It does so. Can't see it. Oh, 1849. So, yeah, it would have been six or seven when his father died. And when he left, he, I don't know, he probably did go to school, but when he left education, mm. he became a clockmaker. And then he decided to go to London and he became a, a PC in the Metropolitan Police. So, and, yeah, and progressed quite swiftly through the ranks, which is probably quite unusual for somebody of... Yeah, because it... T- <laughs> Um, he, his reading and writing ability must have been fairly good because yeah. um, a lot of theirs wasn't. No, well, didn't you say a lot of policemen didn't really couldn't really read a lot of PCs? Yes, couldn't read the lower ranks. ranks wouldn't. And they were mainly alcoholics because mm. the pay was so bad, and mm. they 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 wouldn't carry out their duties half the time. Yeah, yeah. everybody in London seems to be an alcoholic at this time. And yeah, everybody of a of a certain class. Yeah, I should say. they um. The, the the prevalent thing then was gin, wasn't it? Gin mm. was available, uh, and that was uh, they used to say they used to just bus it in, didn't they? In great big kegs mm. to to keep areas under control. Yeah, and this this is a recurring theme with the with, with victims that they were all um, unfortunate. Yeah, as they were I described. mean, there is a massive, massive a whacking chasm between the classes there. Yes. Um, and Whitehall was just outside the outer limits of the city of London, mm-hmm. but it was also far enough away from the fashionable West End for them not to be aware of what was what going chapel on. What chapel, you mean? Yeah, sorry, where did I say? Whitehall. Whitehall, I do apologise. Yeah. Well, I don't know, the lowest of the low perhaps lived in Whitehall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, Whitechapel was far enough away, mm-hmm. and people would... Uh, you know, the upper classes would go there and almost treat it like a zoo. Yeah, they used to do day trips, didn't they? Let's go yeah. and see the funny natives in, in yeah. the East End. It, it, yes. It's just wrong. Yeah. It's just so wrong. It's like a, it was almost um, allowed to, con- it, it, the degradation was also allowed to carry on like an experiment. It's like a s- sick social experiment, isn't mm. it? Yes, but getting back to what we were talking about. Yes, death. Yes. Um, <laughs> So it's basically the idea of the series is that while on what look into the the events of of that summer, late summer and autumn, and see if they can find out who the Jack, who Jack the Ripper was, and obviously they can't. No, because no, no. there isn't the proof. Now they spend ninety five percent of it on the sofa, yes. don't they? But they do go outside very briefly. Yes, they yeah, go out to, to the car park, to, to Mitre Square. Mitre Square. Where one of the victims was which, found. Which um, uh, is now the place. It's not Mitre Square anymore, is it? Yeah, Mitre Square is Mitre Square. Oh. But the location is actually, um, I think it's the playground at the school. I'm not sure. All right. There's a, there's a primary school that has a playground there in Mitre Square, so it could well be there. Nice. But yes, yeah, so, um, so they do a lot of chatting, a lot of theorising, 
um, a, writing a lot on of boards. writing on chalk yeah. on blackboards and a, and a whiteboard with a squeaky pen. It is treated like a major investigation yeah. into yeah. a murder. They list all the victims, how they died, yeah. what their nicknames were, how old they were when the they died. The last locations. Yeah. And they've come up with the theory that Dorset Street and, and the two or three surrounding streets... Yeah. is the sort of centre of it. It's the epicentre, isn't it? Yeah, because a lot of the bodies were found around that area. But, you know, you, obviously you come to the conclusion, finally, that you don't know who the killer is. I think what um, what is more understanding of the situation, and Barlow yes. just seems to lose his temper with the fact yeah. of the uh, in, uh, ineptitude of some of the senior ranks in the police at that time. Yes, but then there was quite a lot of ineptitude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was a case of they were keeping a lid on possible revolution in yes. the East End, weren't they? Yes, because they'd already had a riot the year before and... It had gone very badly wrong. Instigated by... Well, the, the actions of the police were instigated by Sir Charles Warren, who yes. actually, being an ex-military man, decided that um, he would have uh, withdraw the police officers and have mm. the army charge at them. Mm. Which didn't go well. No, no, no. Quite a lot of people died, didn't yes. they? And lost limbs and things. Yes. There's also a um, possibility of Masonic involvement, isn't yes. there? Oh, uh, yes. And, and Barlow's... Uh, sort of reactions to this are quite interesting. Yeah, because yeah, you asked a question of me yeah. the other day. Did I think Marlow was Marlow? Marlow <laughs> Barlow was a Mason, mm. and um, I don't think he was. I think he did not mm. like organisations no, like that. No. I got that in that intuitive thing. He sort of he, it's the way he's very cagey about it. You know, like he's I, covering I, something up. I thought it was a. Oh, do, my personal thinking was he was just being very guarded in what he's saying because he's aware that ranks above himself yes. perhaps hold that that, um, that that membership. Yes. But he was very wary of that. Mm. There is that, yes. Uh, plus he's working mm. in the Home Office now. Yes, so, so he's got to be a bit careful of what he says. He's got to be very careful yeah. about what he says. But yeah. it's it's interesting in the development of the, char the characters... Uh, don't leave the confines of what was created for them in Z cars and softly, softly, oh, is it? No, they, no. they do that. Real, it's not as though they suddenly go off on a tangent and become mm -hmm. different people. And, and I think that works so well here. It does. it does. But in terms of sort of their characters and their background, why do you think they've been asked to do this? Can you, can you think of any reason why they would do it? Not not just to make a TV series. I think because. But would they ever be asked to do anything like this? Well, I think it's because somebody knows that they'll probably give it a good go. Mm. What's what's the rationalisation for this case being given to them, though? I don't think there's a rationalisation, but I don't think there is a case of they will solve it or mm. anyone believes they will solve it. I just think this is for that. That there, I actually do think this might be for mainly for Barlow's personal interest mm. because remember he's been come out of mainstream policing now he's working it's within the home to office occupy him, yeah right. I think he's got bored yeah. and he's he's called John Waltz down and said look I'm not being funny but let's give this a yeah, crack so he's done this mm. on his own back you I think? think so yeah, yeah. All right. okay. and it, I'll point out that in 1973 it's 75 years since the mm. murders yeah so it is a yeah i good mean yes there are external reasons for, yeah. for doing it but i'm just what are the personal drives yeah. why they would suddenly find themselves in this room you know mm. what's led to this yeah, yeah. So it's just an interesting question but you know it's a really interesting series and they come up with lots of theories and 
Um, and obviously, as the la- as the last episode indicates, they do discuss the possibility oh, that really annoys Barlow. The last yes. episode doesn't he yeah. gets very angry. Yeah. But the, the, the last in the last episode, the, the one of the suspects was Prince Albert Victor, yeah, Duke of Clarence. Though he wasn't the Duke of Clarence at the time of the murders, he doesn't okay. become Duke of Clarence until eighteen ninety one. But the eldest son of Edward the Seventh and Queen Victoria's grandson. Yeah. And quite frankly, I think the idea that he was Jack the Ripper is preposterous. I think it was idle tittle tattle. Yes. I really do. Yeah. And it's it's the sort of thing that George Lusk would have come up with. Yeah. 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 But you know, there is the theory that the murders. Um, I've seen the theory that the murders were carried out in a coach, which is why there's no blood, because the blood was in the coach. Uh, and again, that doesn't make any logical no. sense either. So, but all these theories are, are interesting. I mean, there's still theories now. I think the most recent ridiculous theory is that uh, the new Duchess of Sussex is related to Jack, to Jack the Ripper. You what? And how they even know that? Oh. She's obviously distantly related to one of the suspects. What a load of cobblers! Yeah, but it's still going on. They're werewolves years anyway, later. aren't they? <laughs> There's there's this thing in the the episodes there about how there's no description or there's only one description which then isn't acted upon. Yes. The um the deer stalker man. Yeah. 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 Or the man with the tall hat. Uh, two different people. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Is it is it one person or is it two? Uh, you would need two people to yeah. to to perpetrate that because surely somebody needs to be keeping watch. Mm. Mm. But there's a lot of familiar faces. That, oh, there that is. Pop yes. up, there we is. should say about who's yes. actually in yeah, it. Yeah, we must say yeah. that the detailed reconstructions are really good. The BBC mm. is really good at drama. Yes. In Victorian drama, especially. Yeah. Particularly, and, yeah. And this was done particularly well. Yes. Yes. I mean, you've got the likes of this. Then this is in just small parts. This oh, is a. Yeah. This is not even a five-minute part for a lot of these people. So you get people like Bernard Kay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maurice Perry, mm-hmm. um, Christopher Benjamin, Christopher Benjamin yeah. being Henry Gordon Jago a few years before Henry Gordon Jago, and not as obviously uh, as overtly flamboyant. Yeah, with a cigar. With a cigar. Yes, yeah. I remember. And Brandy yeah. Snaps is in it, isn't yes. he? Pre- yes, Cyril Snaps. Cyril Snaps and and Mark, Mark Eden. Yeah, you know um, Wendy Williams. Yeah, Alan Ford, Kenneth Colley. Kenneth Colley's yeah. got a part as a as a one scene policeman. Yeah. Um, it's amazing what people are. Uh, um, uh, it's it just amazing for the fact that people are appearing in it, and you say it's just for such a small period of yeah. time. But the cast is huge. It is absolutely. But huge. then it has to be huge to 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 envisage 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 the scope of the amount of people yeah. that were vol- involved indirectly or directly. Yeah, because With this, the, you know the policemen, the jurors, the coroners. This could have been so cheaply shot. It could. It could. It could have literally just been Barlow and Watt in an office. Yeah, talking about it. And it could be illustrations that we're using. But it's not. It's it's almost as if we're watching what's going on in Barlow and Watt's head. Yes. But yeah, it's... uh, I mean, it's not commercially available. Mm. No. And it it should be. It should be. be. Um, be. And if anybody from Simply Media is listening or Acorn or um, Network... You know, you'd have at least two people buy it. I know that's not a lot, but I'm sure more people will buy it. <laughs> I think that would be a good seller. Yeah. I really do think that they would be a good seller. They put it in a seller. double pack with the because the, they did another series a few years mm-hmm. later called um, Second Verdict. I think it's called. Mm. Yes. And that's not available at all. I mean, you can track down Jack the Ripper on on 
um, YouTube and places like that. But that's not available at all. And that's in, that's investigating unknown uh, um, unsolved crimes. I mean, like the princess in the tower. How do you even investigate the princess <laughs> in the tower? But, uh, I'm I, sure Barlow would have been about. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I can just imagine him getting really cross at the murder of these two children. But two innocent, two, innocent babes in yes. arms. Can mm. I ask then, uh, what happened to Abline? What happened to him? Well, yeah. he, he retired from the police in um, 1891 or 92, and he became a private investigator for the Pinkerton Agency. And then he retired from that in uh, 1904 to Bournemouth. To Bournemouth. So, so he came back came to ba- his roots. Well, came back to us, uh, yeah. And he's, Bournemouth would have been Hampshire then. Yes, and he's buried mm. in the cemetery in Bournemouth. And about eight or nine years ago, a um, headstone was put up on his grave because the okay. grave was previously unmarked um, because of his years of service. So, and there's also a plaque up on his house where he lived. Okay. So, and hmm. just just to mention other f- famous case, another famous case that he was involved in, wasn't he? Oh yeah, the the the, the Cleveland Street brothel case which i don't actually know that much about i think you know a bit more about that one don't yeah you? I, w- I would say to people to to read up this because it's quite interesting in the amount of um powerful people that were involved in that mm-hmm. um it's it's basically a brothel being run with young men and women working in it mm. and it brings into question a lot of people's beliefs and morals at that time uh, I would recommend people read it up from the mother because it was very, very um, um, sure, twisted and mm. uh, very interesting twists and turns. Yes. And it's worth reading up about that if you get the chance to. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, right. and that brings into royalty as well. Yeah. It does, yes. possibly. Possibly. Well, possibly. Well, thank you, boys and girls. That was yes. And we'll be, doing, interesting. Yeah, we'll be yeah. doing more about Jack the Ripper in the next issue and possibly the one after that yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. More, to di- more to speak speak yes. of then. So. Jolly Jack returns. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, Anne. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. was episode 25 of Round the Archives, starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Andy Priestner, Warren Cummings, Martin Holmes, Paul Chandler, and Nick Goodman. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Jack the Ripper was by Elwyn Jones and John Lloyd. And the producers were Paul Bonner and Leonard Lewis.
could. <coughs> Sorry. Wait till crunch is finished. <coughs> you alright? You got a cough? Yeah, it just, I held it and then... No, no, what a good thing they were able to look at it first. There's a lot of clangers there. Yeah? What do you mean? Well, there are a lot of clangers. No. Oh, look. This is... This is even more than five at one point. One, two, three, four, five. Oh no, what a good thing. One, two, three. And they were able to look at it first. Or oh, five. Although, if you look, one of them's got, of them's got on. black when it goes in. Yeah. But gold. Yeah, gold, gold, red, gold, gold. Oh no, what a good thing. When they go they in, look at it first. the one's got black on. Now they can put yeah. So there's five and there's five. It's like Earthshock. When like some go into the, oh god, like, the clangers were wanted. When people go into the TARDIS and Earthshock, the order changes and the sex changes. Mm -hmm. oh, look at them looking at it, like. Oh. Oh dear. Yes, I see.